Father, we do thank you for the beauty of this day as we look around to the mountains and we see the snow and we're reminded of your majesty and of your power, of the beauty of the creation. And we really wonder at what Eden must have looked like and what the world must have seemed to those that were living in the early years of the history of the earth. And Father, we're grateful though that one day we will stand in the beauty of your presence and we will see the wonderful heaven uh, then the new earth that you will create certainly with glory far beyond this and uh, we really uh, have great anticipation we're so thankful for the Spirit of God who is our down payment our assurance assurance of the eternal life which you've granted to each one of us and we ask that he might be uh, guiding our thoughts this morning and filling us with understanding and Father, we do pray that your spirit will be upon every Sunday school class this morning, that you'll be with each one who is teaching and those that are uh, part of the leadership and, and each one who is in the class, that your spirit will speak and uh, through the word we will all be transformed. Just bless us here this hour and glorify your name in Christ's name. Amen. I would like for us this morning to move to the next to the last sons of Jacob that Jacob gives prophecy concerning in this 49th chapter of Genesis. We've looked at the prophecy uh, that he has given from Reuben all the way down through Naphtali. This morning we're going to focus on Joseph and we will not finish Joseph today. We'll finish him next Sunday and, and work on Benjamin, who is the last. But I'd like for us to read verses 22 through 26 of Genesis 49. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. Its branches run over a wall. The archers bitterly attacked him and shot at him and harassed him. But the bow remained firm and his arms were agile. From the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, from there is the shepherd and the stone of Israel. From the God of your father who helps you, and by the Almighty who blesses you, with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your father have surpassed the blessings of my ancestors, up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of the one distinguished among his brothers. As we look at this particular prophecy this morning, you will probably note that in terms of its length and in terms of the upbeat nature of, of this particular prophecy, the only one that compares to it is that of Judah. Judah is approximately the same length and, and is all, an all-positive prophecy as is this one concerning Joseph. And I really think that if you could have watched Jacob while he was making this prophecy concerning Joseph, I think his all nearly sightless eyes lit up and he almost shook with pleasure as he made this prophecy concerning this one that to him, at least in spirit, was his firstborn the firstborn of his, of his beloved Rachel. And as you remember back through the account of uh, how he obtained his wives and so forth, we know that, uh, the Ra that Rachel was the darling of Jacob all along. And uh, Joseph, 
I mean, he was just in that position that to Jacob he could seemingly do no wrong. In this passage, he rather lovingly refers to him as a fruitful ben. Ben is the Hebrew word for son, or in, as it's translated in this particular passage, branch, because son and branch in, the, in Hebrew thinking basically the same. Uh, the imagery here, as you'll notice in the 22nd verse, is that of a fruitful, luxuriant vine that's growing next to a spring, so there's no problem with water, and the sun is shining, and this vine is just multiplying and spreading out, and it's reaching out and covering the walls with its branches, literally, daughters, in, in the passage in Hebrew. But obviously the picture is, is of, a, of a vine spreading out across this wall and just flourishing beautifully because the water is always there. And as you read that passage, I would suspect, as it did me, that it brings to mind, as I have noted on your outline there, the, the picture of vigor and fruitfulness that we see in the first psalm. And uh, I'd like for us to look at that just uh, for a moment here. The first psalm, which begins the book of Psalms in such a, a dramatic and forceful way. Psalm 1, beginning at verse 1. How blessed is the man, meaning the person, who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the, in the seat of, of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And then we have this same picture here, basically. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatsoever he does, he prospers. Now to the people of that particular world, you, you picture an oasis and of the, a natural spring gurgling up, or of a stream that flows from a perennial spring. And the tree planted there, or in the, in the case of Joseph, a vine planted there, has this constant source of water from which it can draw and grow and flourish. And of course, the clear allusion in the first psalm is back to the law of the Lord. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And the law of the Lord is that, is that spring of living water that always provides sustenance, no matter how the environment, spiritually or even physically for that matter, becomes uh, desiccated and arid and, and antagonistic. The tree grows and the vine spreads and blossoms because the source of strength is always there. God is our strength. God was Joseph's strength. And so, no matter what circumstance he found himself in, he was always fruitful. He was expanding, he was growing spiritually in his relationship to God. Now it actually worked out physically too, because we know that in uh, Joseph's case, he had the double blessing upon him. And you remember we talked about that in the 48th chapter. The double blessing was the fact that his father adopted Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, equally with Jacob's other sons, so that Ephraim and Manasseh received an equal part of the inheritance with their ten uncles, their eleven uncles. And so Jacob uh, saw in Joseph a double blessing, the double blessing of the firstborn. 
And so Ephraim and Manasseh, as two of the largest tribes, now we talked about Judah, and, and Judah would be the progenitor of the largest tribe of all. Judah singly was the largest tribe numerically. But Ephraim and Manasseh were usually next in size, and if combined as the descendants of Joseph, they were in fact even larger when you put the two together. And so here we have a situation where Joseph becomes the ancestor of more Israelites than any of the other brothers. So he's a fruitful vine, even physically, in the production of a large portion of the family. In the 8th century before Christ, the prophet Isaiah made a similar prophecy concerning not just Joseph, of course, but concerning the whole nation of Israel. And I'd like to just read that verse in the 27th chapter of Isaiah, verse 6, where we read that in the days to come, Jacob will take root, Israel will, will blossom and sprout, and they will fill the whole world with fruit. In the days to come, Isaiah, of course, prophesying down the line towards the coming of Messiah and the day when the kingdom of God would be established through Messiah. You and I are part of the fulfillment of that prophecy. We're part of that fruit. In, in this 22nd verse that we've been looking at in Genesis 49, we find that in a way Joseph is a type of Christ. Now, when we studied Joseph earlier in Genesis, we saw in several ways how he was a type of Christ. But even in this prophecy, we see this, uh, this Christocentric idea that's coming forth through Joseph. Joseph's descendants would spread through the land as Christ's descendants, as the fruit of of his life, death, and resurrection would spread through the earth. He is the vine, we are the branches. All of us, I think, are very familiar with that beautiful picture that Christ paints in John chapter 15. Speaking of the vine and of the branches, where Jesus says in John 15, 1, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because the word which I have spoken to you. Clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, and apart from me you can do nothing. I'm always amazed that there are people today who stand in pulpits of churches that have long lost the, the fire of the truth, and they think that they're accomplishing something for God's kingdom when they don't even abide in the vine. You know, apart from me, apart from Christ, you and I can do nothing. And to realize that there are people who are putting time and energy and doing nothing 
while they think they're doing something because they're not plugged into the vine. They're not fruitful branches. They're not boughs as Jacob would be that run over the wall and, and produce this, this beautiful flourishing vine, as it were. Now, the descendants of Joseph through Ephraim and Manasseh were really related to Joseph. Genetically, they were connected down through time. And the sons of Ephraim and Manasseh and the grandsons and the great-grandsons could think back to, to Joseph as their true ancestor. There was a little bit in them of him that the genetic code has been transferred down from generation to generation. But we need to realize that just as the descendants of Ephraim and Manasseh were truly I mean, you know, scientifically it could be shown that they were connected back to Joseph. So you and I are really descended from Christ. The Holy Spirit who came upon Jesus, uh, let me back up a minute. The Holy Spirit who came upon Mary to conceive within her the, the man who we would know as Jesus, the God-man, is exactly the same Holy Spirit who has given to us new life and who indwells us and empowers us to be the children of God. The scripture teaches us that we are brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ, joint heirs with him. I, I don't know, you know, I, sometimes I have to stop and really think about that for a minute. To be a joint heir with Christ, to be equal with him in the inheritance so to speak, as we're told in Romans 8. It's an incredible thought. I, I don't know if we, it really sinks in. Again, I was listening to a tape uh, that we made, I guess, last Sunday, uh, concerning, a, a, or Sunday before, a, a message given by Erwin Lutzer. And he was saying that God loves you and me with the same intense love that he loves his own son. And that love is there even though we have failed, even though he knows we will yet fail. Yeah, it's incredible. It's an incredible thought. But that's really what the scripture is teaching. Because if we are plugged into the vine as branches, his life flows through us. And sometimes we're not very good branches. And, and, and sometimes we are disobedient branches. And he may prune us, but he doesn't cut us off. We remain in the vine, you know, in, in the vine as, as branches because he loves us with that same love with which he loves his own son. And I think it's really important for us, not as an excuse. Oh, well, God loves me anyway, so I can just go and do whatever I feel like. Of course, hopefully that we will reciprocate that love by loving him in turn and thus walking in obedience to him. But what I have to keep reminding myself is that God loved me enough to make me his child, knowing who I was, what I would be, and what I would do in the future. I mean, he already knew all that. <laughs> it's not like he said, oh, no. Why'd I choose him? Look at the jerk he's become. 
Now look at the things he's doing. Oh, what a mistake I made. <laughs> no. The Almighty God knows the end from the beginning. He is not surprised by anything that you or I do think or say. And we have to remind ourselves of that so that we don't then consider ourselves cut off and start acting like we're estranged. But at the same time, hopefully that love will cause us to want to love Him in return in such a manner that we do walk with Him even as He has called for us to walk. And when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, the Scripture tells us. And that when we sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin if we confess our sin. And it's important, of course, that we do that each and every day. So, we are really related to Jesus Christ. Really related through the Spirit of God who indwells us, just as Jacob was really related with his descendants. In the 23rd verse of Genesis 49, uh, Jacob suddenly turns to a military theme. And he says, the archers bitterly attacked him and shot at him and harassed him. Well, that kind of contrasts rather starkly with the verse before. And suddenly it seems a little bit strange to rather incongruous Im imageries here, if you will. And who shoots at a vine? Oh, there's a vine over there. <laughs> I'm going to shoot it with an arrow, you know. It doesn't seem like uh, the two uh, necessarily fit together. But of course, he's having, I mean, he's prophesying here concerning the future. And he's portraying Joseph in these different images. And in this case, he's talking about the archers bitterly attacking him. And if it, it, the impl implication of the Hebrew here <laughs> is that the attack is not a hesitant or a disinterested attack. But the Hebrew word here means strong. Strong attack, a serious attack, an attack with a point of destroying, of overwhelming. They press their attack and they shoot at him. The word for harassed means to bear a grudge or to hate. In other words, they weren't attacking Joseph just because he happened to be in the way. They attacked Joseph because they hated him. So what is Jacob saying here? Well, it seems that he is speaking, he is speaking, yes. He is speaking both historically and prophetically here. He is speaking historically in the sense that he is saying, Joseph's brothers bore such a hate towards him that they sought to destroy him. And we know that he, they threw him into the cistern and they wanted to kill him. And ultimately they sold him into slavery, but their heart's desire was murder. They hated him. They bore a grudge against this one. And yet it's also prophetic because in Ephraim and Manasseh we have the tribes that would spread through the central part and the eastern part of uh, Palestine along, of course, with the other tribes, and they would be pressed hard by their enemies. You've read the Old Testament, I trust, as I have, and as you start, you know, the con the, you have the conquest and you have the book of Judges, and in the book of Judges you have many attacks against the land, and in, even after the kings come into power, there's war and war and war. 
You know, there, there's, there's even a passage that says, and in the spring of the year, when kings go out to war, <laughs> as if it's kind of like normal routine of things, well, spring got to go to war, you know, <laughs> type thing. And, and that seems to be a theme that constantly runs through so much of the Old Testament. And I think the theme is there not only because there was the reality of physical war, but to remind us of the, of the reality of spiritual warfare that is always going on. Satan doesn't take a vacation. His little minions don't go off on a holiday someplace. They're always working. They're always at war with the children of God. That's why we can't really go on a holiday either. No, I don't mean we can't take a real vacation. But in our spirits, we have to be on guard all the time. You know, as they say in fencing, I guess, on guard. You know, and you get the, the, the sword out and you're ready. You're ready to do battle, and, and, and that's the way it's got to be because the enemy is relentless. And so the enemies would be relentless against Ephraim and Manasseh and the other tribes. And, and as you read through the book of Judges and, and you read into Samuel and, and Kings, you discover war after war after war. And so many of these wars were fought with the Amalekites, the Moabites, the Edomites, the Ammonites, uh, these people who were all related to Israel. They had a blood relationship. They were either the descendants of the sons of Lot or the descendants of Esau or, or whatever. And, and there was this constant warfare, it seems like. It wasn't exactly constant, but it seems constant as you read through the pages of scripture. And so the bow, the archer, is there shooting seriously. And what kind of war is there that is more a vicious war than a war between brothers? I mean, we know in the history of the United States there's been no more vicious war fought than the American Civil War. And of course we never have in any war have lost as many men as we lost in the Civil War. And such hatreds that were engendered. So it would be between Israelite and Amalekite and Moabite and Edomite. So the archer was there, harassing and shooting seriously with the purpose of destruction. Then in verse 24, but his bow remained firm and his arms were agile from the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. This verse is describing Joseph's reactions and the source of his strength. The term bow here, I believe, is symbolic. The bow, of course, symbolizes the strength of a warrior, the strength of a nation, the strength of a clan, the strength of a tribe. But here I think it symbolizes spiritual strength, not just literal physical warfare, but spiritual strength is being symbolized here. Personally, Joseph was unmoved from the source of his strength by the adversity that, that he faced. You, you remember as we studied through the life of Joseph, how he seemed so consistent in his trust in God. Now, of course, the Bible is, is giving to us, a, it's, it's taking his life and kind of telescoping it and, and jumping from one item to the other, and it doesn't go into the long details of the months and the years in between. And I think we have to realize that Joseph was human as we are. 
Just as the scripture in James tells us that Elijah was a man like we are, so was Joseph. And so he certainly had his ups and downs. He had his days when he was high emotion in his days when he was low. Days when he had doubts in his mind and days when his faith was strong, even as we do. But in the long picture, in the big picture, he never abandons his faith. His strength in God is, is, is based in his faith in God. That is his bow. His faith in God is his bow. And with it, he was able to vanquish the enemy in the spiritual realm. I mean, he trusted God no matter what his brothers did, right? Sure, he did cry out, oh, don't do this to me. Take me out of this pit. He was just a kid. And, and when he was sold to the Amalekites, certainly his heart was, was you know, in, in, the, in the pit as his brothers were abandoning him to slavery. But through it all, he learned to trust. And no matter what his brothers did, or the Amalekites did, or Potiphar's wife did, or Potiphar did, or the butler who forgot him after he gave a prophecy and the guy promised, I go back to Pharaoh and I'll tell Pharaoh about you. And for two years, nothing happens. In the midst of it all, and through it all, his bow was strong. You see, God considers our bow strong as long as our foundation of faith is there. God doesn't look down at us every minute and say, oh, guy's down now, and his faith's a little weak. I guess I'm just going to have to leave him for a while till he wakes up, or I'm going to have to smack him upside the head or whatever. You know. God looks at the overall picture of who we are. God knows who, who we are in the, in the very core of our being. And that's where our hope has to remain strongly rooted. I mean, there are days when I feel closer to the Lord than other days. There are days when I feel that I've done His will more than other days. But in the core of my being is this desire to do Your will, O oh God. Even though sometimes the flesh is overwhelming and sometimes I yield to the flesh as all of us do. And yet in the, in the heart of, of my being is the desire to do Your will. Have you ever had that feeling or, or ever prayed that prayer that God, if I could just now choose from this moment on, do nothing but your will, I so choose. But we have to live every minute. And every minute we have to re-so choose. And sometimes we feel too tired to re-so choose. And I don't know about you, but sometimes there's a little spirit of rebellion there that says, I just want to do what I feel like doing right this minute. And that may not be good. And often it's not. But God is there anyway. He has not abandoned us. And uh, the, the bow is there. Our, our bowstring may be a little slack at the moment, but the bow of spiritual warfare remains. There will be descendants of Joseph who provide strong spiritual leadership for Israel. There will be a Joshua who is the descendant of Joseph who will lead Israel strongly into the conquest of the land and who will be the mighty warrior who stands before God. And there will be a Samuel who hears the voice of the Lord in the night and grows up to be the mighty prophet who, who is given the responsibility of anointing the first king and, of course, is distressed by the fact that the people want a king because the Lord had made it quite clear through his word that 
There is no king but God. And yet, the people wanted a king. They didn't want to be unlike the surrounding nations. And God said, go ahead, Samuel, anoint a king. It's not you. They're rejecting, it's me. And then, of course, he did have the joy of anointing David, who would be the apple of God's eye. And then there was a Gideon, who was also a descendant of Joseph, who would be a mighty man of God. He didn't think he was, and he wasn't in the flesh. But God used him in a mighty way, in spite of the fact he'd do some stupid things later on. But you're going to have a hard time going through Scripture without finding that most of God's people at some point do a stupid thing or two, or five or twelve. <laughs> and uh, sometimes the Scripture just points to one because it has to do with the whole flow of things, but we know that they were human as we are. Scripture goes on in this same verse to say that Joseph's arms were agile. That is the strength of his faith in God never failed. He triumphed in every situation, even though it didn't seem too much like triumph. When Potiphar's wife was accusing him of trying to rape her, and Potiphar sends him off into prison, for, and he goes to prison for doing good, it might not have seemed like he was triumphing. But in the long run, he would, because from that pit, he'd be raised to the pinnacle. And he would become the ruling prince of the land in which he was introduced as a foreign slave. Again, as we studied that story, there is probably nowhere in human history uh, another record that is any more dramatic of rising from rags to riches than the story of Joseph. And of course, God receives the glory for it all. He says, you meant it for evil but God meant it for good. Can, can we translate that into our own lives? You know? we, we may go through a really difficult time and we know Satan means it for evil. You know, God, Satan is there trying to use every situation in our lives to mean it for evil. You know, and we can play into his hand and, and start having that, that you know, little pity party that uh, so we are so tempted to have often rather than giving God praise in all things. But Scripture teaches us that God turns it for good, and as a result, we triumph in Christ, as Joseph triumphed in his faith in God. In 2 Corinthians 2.14, I'll just turn to it quickly, we have that, that verse that we need to constantly remind ourselves of, but thanks be to God, who once in a while leads us in his triumph in Christ. Is that what it says? No. Who always leads us in his triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in a few places, in every place. I mean, this verse is amazing in its use of, of you know, terms that imply Totality. God who always leads us in his triumph and manifests through us the sweet aroma of Christ and the knowledge of him in every place. Joseph emitted the fragrance of the knowledge of God in prison. And therefore the warden of the prison gave to Joseph charge of all the prisoners. 
in the prison. When we're in prison as it were, were whatever that might be, are, are we reflecting the knowledge of Christ? Are we a fragrant aroma wherever we are? Or are we a stink? You know, I, I'm just reminded of, of those who have so tarnished the name of Christ. People in leadership. We're reminded, of course, of some of the televangelists. Fortunately, some of that has kind of moved into the past, at least as in terms of the public situation. But that's not a fragrant aroma of Christ. By his name, his name gets blasphemed sometimes by the way his people act, even as God spoke to David. But we're to be a fragrant aroma in all situations. I think that the statement in Genesis also refers to the strength of the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh in helping to win the land. Not only was Joshua the strong leader from Ephraim, the one who spearheaded the conquest, who was God's general for the conquering of the land, but if you take the tribe of Ephraim and the tribe of Manasseh and add their manpower up to the tribe of Judah, you had the, the spearhead of the conquest. You, you had a very large percentage of the total manpower that was used in the conquest from those three tribes, Joseph and Judah, as it were. In the settlement, I don't know if you can picture this, but Ephraim was settled in the middle of the country. North, south, east, west, Ephraim settled in the middle of the country, right smack in the highlands north of Jerusalem. The tribe of Ephraim settled in that area and was given one of the larger tribal allotments. It was a larger tribe. And then the tribe of Manasseh was settled on both sides of the Jordan River, the only tribe to straddle the river. And so Ephraim had the responsibility of guarding the heartland, of defending the heart of the country, and Manasseh had the, uh, the opportunity of defending that, that so critical border of the Jordan River, or that line that would be a border, uh, by defending both sides of it at the same time. And so, in many ways, they were a strength in the conquest and a strength in holding the land physically in the future. And then one day there would come a king known as Jeroboam, Jeroboam the first, actually. He was also an Ephraimite. And he would establish the northern kingdom. And that northern kingdom was not a good kingdom. It was ruled by evil kings from the very first to the very last. And the prophets constantly, however, referred to that northern kingdom as Ephraim. Back at, uh, in the third line of the 24th verse, from the hands of the mighty one of Jacob we discover the true source of Joseph's strength. The true source of Joseph's strength was the mighty one of Jacob. Joseph's hands and his bow were made firm because the hands of the mighty one of Jacob were around him, holding his hands firm and giving him a strong bow. On his deathbed, Jacob is again acknowledging his dependence throughout his life upon the Mighty One whom he has personalized as the Mighty One of Jacob. 
I think that gives us every reason to refer to God as the Mighty One of George, Sally, Jim, Ben, whoever it happens to be, whoever you are. The Mighty One of Dawn. That doesn't make me anything, but it makes him the Mighty One. And the Mighty One of Jacob is our Mighty One, even as he was of Jacob and of Joseph. You remember that Jacob first encountered the Mighty One at Bethel, and the vision of the angels going up and down so-called Jacob's ladder. And from that moment on, for the next 80 years, Jacob would experience the hand of the Mighty One, who would be upon him, who protected him in every situation, in his travels, singularly, all along, through a foreign land, clear up to Paden Aram, or Syria. And uh, enabled him there for over 20 years to, to live and to multiply and to become wealthy and powerful and then to come back and enter the land. And Jacob was protected low those many years. Protected from Laban. Protected from Esau. Protected from the Shechemites. Protected at every point. To live his 147 years and then to become a man of wealth and a man of power a chieftain, if you will, of the land, the mighty one of Jacob. I think it's just a wondrous thing when a man or a woman on his or her deathbed gives all credit to God for whatever has been accomplished of good in that life. It's been by the mighty hand of God that anything good has transpired through my life. Scripture tells us that in our flesh there dwells no good thing. That's why I pray every, all week and every Sunday morning that God will do something to all of our hearts through His Word as we sit in the service, as we sit in class. Because if it's just us up there trying to wax eloquent or, or to buy some... Uh, you know, stretch the imagination, try to help somebody in the flesh. You might as well forget it. There's no purpose in us sitting here. We might as well sit home and watch the boob tube or read the newspaper. But if the mighty one of Jacob, if the mighty one of, of our lives is at work, and if he's making his word living and powerful in our lives, then, then it's been worth the effort. And it's been what God has wanted it to be. So mighty was this God of Jacob that he would still be thus remembered over 800 years later. When the Israelites, I don't know if you can picture this, but as they walked up the paths, the roads to Jerusalem, and as they walked up the roads first to the tabernacle and then to the great temple that Solomon built, they sang songs as they marched. These are known in the Psalms as the songs of ascents, as they ascended the hill unto the tabernacle or to the temple. Psalm 132 is one such psalm where we read in verse 1, Remember, O Lord, on David's behalf all his affliction, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, Surely I will not enter my house nor lie on my bed, I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my, to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, 
a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. To David, he was still the mighty one of Jacob. And it was David's desire to build the temple. But God said, no, it will be the responsibility of your son. But, Jake, uh, but, but David had the joy of collecting all that it was going to take to build the temple. He couldn't actually build it, but he could get all the parts together. Imagine the great stockyard of all the, all the things that would be used to build a temple. And then Solomon would get the joy of constructing a temple of the Lord. The mighty one of Jacob. And then a thousand years after Jacob, the prophet Isaiah would not only repeat the name mighty one of Jacob, but he would give us some other synonyms for the name the mighty one of Jacob. In Isaiah 49, beginning at verse 24, Can the prey be taken from the mighty man, or the captives of a tyrant rescued? Surely, thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty man will be taken away, and the prey of the tyrant will be rescued. For I will contend with the one who contends with you, and will save your sons. I will feed your oppressors with their own flesh, and they will become drunk with their own blood as with sweet wine. And all flesh will know that I, the Lord, and the Hebrew here is Yahweh, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. The Mighty One of Jacob was Yahweh. The Mighty One of Jacob was Savior and Redeemer. And again... I don't think there's any way a person can legitimately go through the New Testament and read that Jesus is our Savior and Jesus is our Redeemer and somehow diminish Him from His deity. Because Yahweh is Savior and Yahweh is Redeemer. Jesus is Savior and Jesus is Redeemer. Thus, Jesus is Yahweh. The clear teaching of Scripture here in these passages is that of a God who intercedes on behalf of his people. A God who has the strength and the power to help and to defend his people who trust in him. He is the one who saves and redeems. He saves us and he redeems us. And you and I need both salvation and redemption. Now, such a God was absolutely unique in the days of Jacob, in the days of David, and in the days of Isaiah, because there was no other God who was a Savior and a Redeemer and a Mighty One of Jacob. The other gods were gods to whom you had to sacrifice your babies or participate in ritual temple prostitution or... You know, fear every moment because the God might zap you in one moment and give you a gift in the next and you don't know why in either case. And there was no hope of salvation and no hope of redemption. And even though today there are many imitations, God truly is still unique because the imitation gods don't save and they don't redeem. Only the God of Scripture through His Son, Jesus Christ, who is nothing less than God of very God, 
Only He can save and, and He can redeem. There is no other name given among, under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And it's not the God of the temple in Salt Lake City. And it's not the God of Kingdom Hall or any of these other imitations because those gods don't save, those gods don't redeem. But it's only the God of Jacob, of Joseph, of you, and of me. And why does he do it? He does it purely out of love and mercy, not as the gods of the pagans who save or attempt to save because of their own lusts and desires. Isaiah tells us in chapter 45, Gather yourselves together and come. Draw near together, you fugitives of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idol and pray to a God who cannot save. Declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together who has, who has announced this from old. Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord, Yahweh? There is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved, all ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back, that to me every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. What does it say in Philippians? Of Jesus, the very thing of Yahweh here. You've got to be blind. You've got to be committed to something else to not see Yahweh written all over the person of Jesus. They will say of me, only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. Men will come to him, and all who were angry at him shall be put to shame. It is the Lord, in the Lord, all the offspring of Israel will be justified and will glory because he saves, he redeems, and no other God can do that. Well, next Sunday, I want for us to look at the last line of verse 24 and, of course, move on through the remaining verses of Joseph's prophecy at some poetic synonyms of the mighty God of Jacob, the shepherd and the stone of Israel. Because there's a wealth of faith-increasing truth, even in those two synonyms.